time. Church, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, I want to talk to you about the concept of hinge moments. So, hinge moments are key moments in your life when things were hard or challenging, and the decisions that you make in those moments, they clarify the state of your character for you. So it's like uh, hinge moments are like you could go this way or you could go this way and, and the intensity of the situation, uh, the, the, the experience that you're having helps you kind of make a decision and the decision that you made in that moment is very revealing of the state of your character, right? These things, these are like... Um, they're like a sieve that, that kind of shakes loose all the dirt, right? You think of like people who are mining for gold and they grab up all the dirt and they, they put it in the pan and then they, they, they sift through it and sift and sift to reveal the gold perhaps that is there. That's what these hinge moments do. So uh, some examples of this. Um, I think of uh, many people uh, who seek to like care for either elderly or sick parents or spouses or something like that. Like people in their family who are close to them who demand a lot of care because of the nature that's, of something that's happened to them, right? So uh, my example of this, I watched my father-in-law care for my dying mother-in-law as she had brain cancer. And as I watched him do that, I got to witness him uh, kind of love her like Christ loved the church, right? Uh, to, to love sacrificially, for her to give up much of his time and so much of his comfort to, uh, to just be able to care well for her. Uh, yes, because he loved her in the kind of romantic sense that we talked about love, but I, I would tell you that the way that he loved her and cared for her in that season could only be created by the Holy Spirit and by Christ, right? Uh, that, that the intensity of that moment re- revealed something really good and really pure about his character. Right? Uh, the other kinds of things that do this, like high conflict situations are kind of like hinge moments for us because uh, our response in those high conflict situations reveals something about our character. So like when you're in high conflict, do you get combative and start using your words to inflict pain? Do you in high conflict get afraid and shrink back or avoid the conversation that has to be had? Or do you in high conflict go in with humility, willing to admit where you might be wrong and work together with the other person for what is best? Right. So, so that kind of uh, hinge moment can really reveal what is in your heart. Uh, another example of this, when you don't get something that you were hoping for, Right, when you don't get your way, when you don't get what you want or something that you were looking forward to, how do you respond to that? Right, your response to that reveals something about the state of your character. Do you lash out? Do you quit? Do you give up? Or do you say, okay, I accept the results of this and I'm gonna persevere to the next thing, right? So now if you're like me, you have probably encountered some hinge moments that have revealed some not great things about your heart, right? Uh, Some things that maybe you don't love all that much. But here's the crazy thing. Like, I am and 
you should be like thankful for those moments. Thankful for what they show you. As, as hard as they are, they are opportunities for you because what they've done for me is that they've helped, my, helped me turn my attention to what is most important. Right? They've shown me what is not good in my own heart and revealed to me the depths of the kindness and the patience and the love of God for me. They've pushed me to take steps of repentance and deeper life with God. And so these hinge moments are significant. So this is what we are talking about. We're in a series called Discernment. Now, the last few weeks, I've given you a definition for discernment, and I'm going to change that definition today. There are a couple of reasons for that, uh, but the main reason is, um, you know, as I, as I have been, uh, you know, studying in this series on discernment, I have become more discerning, <laughs> and uh, I figured out that maybe the, the framework that we have applied to discernment hasn't been the most helpful. So, so I want to change this definition. This is me admitting uh, that I, I messed something up here. So, okay, so discernment. I want to change this definition. I talked about, uh, you know, it, it being about the ability to test and determine what is right in a given situation, right? And there's, there's truth in that, right? Like, I, I, I understand that. But um, discernment is, is perhaps more broad than just thinking about situation by situation. And the implication of the definition that I gave was that you could arrive at a given situation and determine the exact right answer for the given situation. And that would imply that there, like, before you decide that there could only be right answer beforehand, when there, there's a reality that there could be many good options, right? And so you're just trying to figure out what makes the most sense and that kind of stuff. So, so I want to frame this a different way. I want to talk about discernment like this. Discernment tests and determines what is going on under the surface, right? And what I mean by under the surface is that there is an action, but that, that action is not, the, there's like a thing behind the thing. There's a reason for the action. There is a, a kind of underlying either motivation or idea going on underneath the action, and we need to be aware of that. We need to be able to discern goodness and rightness and appropriateness that, uh, that could be under any situation or any kind of action. So let me talk about uh, this. So last week we, we asked, how do I discern God's will? Right, it's all about surrender. That we present our whole selves to him as living sacrifices. And so discerning what's going on under the surface is, is essentially saying, is that an action that can be made out of surrender? Is surrender going on underneath the surface? Is that an action that is led by surrender? The more increasing we, li we live in surrender, the better we are able to discern the things that he wants. But we ended with asking this question, right? How do I know if I'm really surrendered? And that's where this whole under the surface thing really comes into detail because what we're talking about is how do we know what's going on in our hearts? Right? So towards that end, we need to explore this question of how do I discern my own heart? How do I discern the motives of my heart? And so for that, we're going to look to Hebrews chapter 4. So verse 7, Hebrews 4 verse 7 says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
So uh, the book of Hebrews was written to first century Jewish believers in Jesus, people who had converted from Judaism to acknowledging Jesus as the promised Messiah of the scriptures. And Judaism, in this time that this letter was being written, Judaism was in the middle of a massive hinge moment. Right, so first of all, you had uh, Jews who had not converted to Christianity. Uh, they were persecuting, actively persecuting Jewish Christian believers in Jesus. Right, so that's just kind of a first reality. But then, then second of all, you add to this, there were a, a number of very practical kind of theological arguments being pushed out into uh, churches, into places where Christians were gathering and Jewish Christians were gathering that were, were essentially suggesting that Christianity was very anti-Jewish. Right, that the things that you have been learning your whole life as you have come up in Judaism, that Christianity is actually working against those things. And so that kind of teaching was making its way into churches or at least to the fringes of churches. And so Jewish Christian believers were in the middle of this hinge moment, right? The intensity of these realities was building. And it seems, especially as you read the book of Hebrews, it seems that there was significant temptation for Jewish believers to abandon their Christian faith and return to Jewish practice. So if you read chapters three and four of Hebrews, and this will kind of set up what the, the context for this verse that we just read, uh, the writer, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is something interesting. What he's, he's hearkening back, taking the Israelites back to their journey through the wilderness. He's looking back to how they walked through the wilderness. And at the beginning of that journey, uh, God gave them uh, something called Sabbath something called rest. They had been working day after day after day without any rest in Egypt. They had been slaving relentlessly. And he's saying, hey, remember that time when God gave your ancestors the day called Sabbath. Remember when he gave them rest, right? And on that day, they rested from their work and they, they placed their attention just on enjoying the gifts of God. But even as they practiced it, this is what the, the, the writer of this book is saying to them. He said, even as they practice it, you know that the Sabbath was not just about the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was pointing forward to something that was going to come. Most immediately for them, the Sabbath was pointing forward to their arrival in the land. That, that uh, once they got to this land that God had been promising, it, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, a land full of abundance for them, that this would be a place, after they have been living in slavery all these 400 years, that they would finally be able to come and they would get to enjoy God's gifts, the abundance of this land. Right? It was pointing them forward. And so, so what the writer is doing is he's causing them to look back at this moment in history, in their collective history, when they had this promise of rest that the land would provide. But when they heard about the giants that were in the land and the dangers that were in that land, the people who were given that promise became afraid. And in their fear, they decided that they would not go in to the land that God was promising. Right, so there it is, there's the promise, there's the land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. God's gonna give it to them as a gift. He's gonna drive out their enemies from before them, but they said, ah, I think we're better off in the desert. I think this is a better place for us. So the author says 
As the author is writing about what they did, the author says that those people back at that time, they hardened their hearts. They hardened their hearts. Their hinge moment clarified that what was actually in their hearts was unbelief, right? That they were not willing to, the the God who had split the Red Sea before them, who had uh, put to shame all of the gods of Egypt, who had brought them out into the desert and was providing for them day by day with manna on the ground and and all this just abundance that he is giving them as he is leading them towards abundance. They said, "Ah, I think we're gonna be safer walking around here in the wilderness. And so in their hinged moments, their unbelief is brought to the surface, right? Their unbelief is clarified. The sieve is sifted and there is no gold left, right? And so God responds by saying, and this is what the the writer talks about. He's quoting Psalm 95. uh, God responds to this situation by saying, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, right? I had a rest for them, but their unbelief came to the surface, and so I swore in my wrath, I sh- they shall not enter my rest. And so that generation died in the desert, and their kids got to go in and take the land. So then the author goes on and says, after they took the land, right, their kids came in, they get this thing that was being promised, and so you have the rest of Sabbath, the seventh day, right, and you have the rest of now being in the land, But it's interesting, after that happens, God is still giving a promise of rest, right? Which means that Sabbath and the land were still pointing forward to another rest that was coming. Their signposts pointing to another promise. And so what the the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, faith and life in Jesus is the rest that the seventh day and the land were pointing to. Right, so, so this is what the, the author is saying. He's saying, hey, like, look at this rest that has been promised to you. Look at the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Look how, at how pure he is. And if you go back to, all the way to Hebrews chapter 1, like he is uh, the most significant being in all of the universe. Like higher than even the angels, he is uh, just central, the central figure of all of history. Right? And so, so he's saying, hey, this is the rest. Belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, life in Jesus. This is the rest that all of these things in Israel's history was pointing to. And the author is telling, them, telling these, these Jewish believers, hey, I know we're in a hinge moment. I know things are really hard. I know things are very confusing. And I know there's many false teachings out there. And I know there's many different ways that you can go. And so what he does is he picks up this warning from Psalm 95. This, uh, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He picks up this warning from Psalm 95 as a way of saying, just like our ancestors disobeyed in the wilderness and rejected God's rest, we right now are being tempted to reject God's rest of faith and life in Jesus. The temptation is strong, and right now you are being inclined. You have many voices coming at you to say, reject your faith in Jesus and come back to what you previously knew. 
And so he says to them, let us learn the lesson that our ancestors did not learn. Right? They, they were in the wilderness. They were given promise from God. They did not believe. Let us not make the same mistake that they made. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so Hebrews 4, after verse 7, it expounds on this idea, but I just want to take you then to verse 11. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So now he's talking about the rest that we have been promised in Jesus, the gift of faith and life in Jesus. And he's saying, hey, make sure you stay faithful to Jesus. Strive to stay true to your faith in Jesus so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So that when the, 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 the sieve gets sifted, It's not just dirt that's falling through, but so that there might be something true to be found at the core of what's going on. Strive to enter that rest. He's saying, we don't want to make the same mistake that our ancestors did. When their time came, they said to God, no thanks. Right? They said to God, we prefer kind of the, the, the heat and we prefer kind of the non-abundance of this place that we're walking around and we prefer the danger. Like we just kind of would like to stay out here. We're not really looking for a land flowing with milk and honey. And so their temptation to go a different way, the temptation of these Hebrews to go a different way, it is getting heavier and heavier. And so in their case, the source of, of temptation, they are... The, uh, The consequences for following Jesus, they are increasing, actively increasing, right? Their comfort in life is decreasing. Their social status is decreasing. We've talked about this before, but if you're a Jewish believer in in many cities with the Jewish synagogue, it was very likely if you claimed the name of Christ that you would have been put out of the synagogue, which meant that that you were put out of society. Uh, What was restricted from you was the ability to buy and sell and actively participate and have community, right? Like all of these things were taken away from you. So your social status decreases, and the threat to your life increases, right? And in this case, all of this was true for these Jewish believers. The temptation was heavy. Now, I don't just want to talk about their temptation because we are very, like, we have this very real reality where there are temptations calling us to abandon Jesus, right? Calling us to set aside our faith. Access to comfort and ease of life by our own power. It's a strong temptation to abandon Jesus, right? The seeping in of human philosophy and ideology into um, organizations and institutions that call themselves Christian, right? The ability that we have now to fill our lives with endless streams of amusement and distraction. The social belief that faith is good as long as it's privately practiced, right? The suggestion that our experience of painful things must mean that God has abandoned us, right? A cultural emphasis on freedom that, you know, y'all, I love freedom, right? Don't get me wrong here. But this cultural emphasis on freedom can incline us to reject all kinds of authority, that might call us to restrain ourselves, including God's authority. 
Right, so there are hosts of temptations. And, and so what the author is telling the Jewish Christians to do in their case, and uh, what we should receive as the same message to do in our case, is the same thing that Paul, the apostle, tells himself to do in Philippians 3. Right? As the temptations strengthen, and as they increase in variety, and as they intensify, you need, we need to strive to dig deep to enter that rest in our faith in Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. He is the promised one of ages past. Don't pass him up for your own comfort. That's what the author is saying. And Paul picks up on this theme. He's saying, I need to do this for myself. Philippians 3, 12 through 16. He says, not that I already have obtained this or am already perfect. And he's saying, like I'm, like, I'm not there. I haven't arrived at where Jesus is yet. But he says, I do this. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's like, I, I dig deeper. I strive to know Jesus more. It's so interesting. Paul, I think, knew Jesus better than just about anybody. He had an intimate relationship with Jesus. But just before this, he says, you know, I, I do all of the things that I do that I might know him more, that I might know him better, that I might know him deeper. I strive to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So hear this, Paul, he is secure in his salvation. He knows to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. His faith in Christ is rock solid, but he says, you know what? I haven't arrived yet. I keep striving, not to somehow prove myself to God, but to dig deeper into the wonder of Christ because he's been so good to me. So, um, just hear this encouragement. Because this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, dig deep into life with Jesus, lest you abandon it for something more preferable. Right, that's what he's saying. Dig deep into life with Jesus, lest you abandon it for something more preferable. The whole point of deeper life with Jesus is to go further up and further in. And the, the more that we go up, the more we discover that he is the only real source of satisfaction for us. Right, so the purpose of our surrender is going and going deeper with him is to bring us increasingly to a place where if we don't get him, then nothing else matters. Right, like that's, that's the message that we're trying to say to our heart. Paul, like before this in uh, Philippians chapter 3, he talks about kind of the litany of things that he's earned, the high status that he had deserved in Jewish society, that he had built up his resume, that he had done uh, various actions, that he was kind of the, the highest status as a teacher and one who knew the law and he was zealous for it and everybody recognized him as one who was significant and he says I count it all as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ meaning if I don't get Jesus it's pointless the rest of it doesn't matter 
That's the kind of thing, the kind of idea, the kind of perspective that we're called to strive into with Jesus. Uh, the, the whole thing about that more preferable statement, that we would find something more preferable, is a statement about the condition of our hearts. Right? It's a statement about what these authors, these writers are calling us into. Right? It's a a statement that causes us to question what's actually going on in our hearts. The reason that we would dig deeper with Jesus is because he changes what we prefer. He shifts what we desire. And when we start initially with him, we do not desire as we ought, but he you know, meets us in the person of the Holy Spirit and the, the proclaimed word and uh, helps us to uh, believe, but then from the believing point, he helps us to recognize our hearts are not the way that they ought to be, and so we dig deeper with him because he changes our hearts, and whatever little piece, no, mustard seed, nugget of gold exists there in our hearts, the more we strive, the more that he grows it. And so the gospel of Jesus invites us to say yes to Jesus initially to receive his gift of salvation for us. But it also invites us to keep saying yes to Jesus, to know him more, to change our hearts and keep changing them. So that's what the author of Hebrews is warning about. That's what he's saying, hey, strive to enter that rest. Dig deeper as the, the intensity goes up. Dig deeper in this faith in Jesus. So then Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and active. Now for any of you who have been Christians for a long time, you've undoubtedly heard this verse before if you've not memorized it, but I want to invite you to see, uh, see this verse in a kind of different, more full light. The author is not simply talking about scripture here. He's talking about about Jesus, right? The, the word of God, it's the same kind of language that is used in John chapter one when the, the author John says, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That yes, the word of God is in, in a sense referring to scripture, but scripture is God's revelation of himself, the way God reveals himself. And so Jesus as the word of God, is God's revelation of himself to us. He's the fullness of what all of the scriptures have been pointing to. Right? So the author is telling us that Jesus, the revelation of God, is, he is the fullness of everything that, that the Bible has been talking about all of this time. He says Jesus Christ is living and active. Right? So get this. God's word has life and power and significance, and it does not return void. Right? That, is, that is what uh, we hear about in the book of Isaiah, like I, I will send my word out and my word will not return void. Do you know how I know that God's word does not return void? Because God's word only ever always points us to Jesus, and Jesus is alive and at work in the world and in the hearts of people. Right, so I know that the word is true. I know that the significance of the word is there because Jesus is alive. Like he, he died and rose from the dead, right? And not only did he rise from the dead, but he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ within us. 
And so Jesus is alive and working in the hearts, and he's not a fairy tale. The news of his demise is greatly exaggerated. He conquered death. He is alive. And so all of God's revelation, with Jesus being the fullness of God's revelation, it is living and active. He is living and active. So it goes on in Hebrews 4, living and active, sharper, than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. So insofar as you encounter the Bible, God's word, as the revelation of Jesus, right? it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna clarify why I'm making all of these clarifications. Because you can come to the Bible and you can kind of engage it in a cerebral kind of way with your mind, uh, but not actually see Jesus that is written onto the pages of scripture and not engage it as a revelation of Jesus. And so insofar as you turn the Bible into an academic exercise that is just meant to give you information but is not showing you Jesus, the one who wants to interact with you, that you, the Bible is not sharper than any two-edged sword for you. Right? It's, it's the word of God that reveals Jesus that is sharper than any two-edged sword. So you cannot divorce scripture from the reality that it reveals Jesus to you. These things work in tandem. So insofar as you read the Bible as the revelation of Jesus and you encounter it as Jesus meeting you with the words of scripture, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, language doesn't help us all that much here. Translation, things get lost, right? We understand this. Quite literally, what the author is talking about is the kind of knife that a butcher would use. Literally, it's the knife that was used by priests in the tabernacle, right? To prepare the sacrifices. So to, to kind of be very intentional about the joints that they had to separate to be very intentional about which muscles they were going to cut between, right? They uh, had to be very intentional about the way that they used that knife. And what, uh, what the author is saying for us is he's saying this revelation from God, it cuts deep and it cuts precisely, right? He performs surgery on us. To what end? Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right, you go deeper with Jesus, the real Jesus who is presented by the whole testimony of Scripture, not some version of Jesus that you make up. Right, you go deeper with him, and you know what happens? And he goes to work. Like he cuts away. He divides the purity of faith in your heart from the impurity of the things that you desire. Right? He shows you the warped motivations and intentions that are left over from your former life. And he sees the ugly and goes to work on it. Right? He cuts it away. So now as we talk about discernment, it seems that discernment works in a couple of different ways, right? Because the, the last two weeks, really, the perspective that we've been talking about is that uh, discernment is something that we do, 
right? Something that we are called to engage in, an active process that we uh, participate in to understand what's going on under the surface, right? But there is a sense in which discernment is also being exercised on us, right? A sense in which we are being discerned, right? So, so just like, I mean, um, there's this phrase like don't read scripture without letting scripture read you. Right, I got that somewhere, I don't even know where it was, but, but uh, don't read scripture without letting it read you. So just like that, the same thing applies here. Don't start discerning without first submitting to the process of being discerned. Right, the Bible speaks of trials that we encounter as tests, right, that word for discernment. Right, that, that the tests are in the process of discerning us. They're tests that purify us, that shake us up and reveal what's at the core. Right, so James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, tests of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He's saying as you go through these difficulties, as you go through these tests, they're not actually just revealing what's at the core, they're, they're building up what's at the core. Right, they're strengthening your faith and let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. There's a theme in all of these uh, chapter, these verses on discernment, these ideas of perfection, completeness, of becoming mature, lacking in nothing, that it's about maturity, right? It isn't, it, it's interesting, the skill of discernment and the process of, in a sense, being discerned are so tightly linked to what it means to be mature, so Jesus talks about this process. I think you'd probably find every writer of scripture that talks about this process. Jesus in John 15, he says, "What? Well, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit is cut off and thrown into the fire. Every branch that does bear fruit, you guess what? It gets pruned so that it can bear more fruit. Right? Jesus is saying, as you follow me, there are going to be a lot of hinge moments, and some of those hinge moments are going to hurt significantly. Because as I work in you, I'm seeking to increase the purity of the work that I've been doing, to bring it to completion. I want to make you mature. I want you too to see the power of what my word can cut away. I want you to stop playing with dead things. And some of these hinge moments will reveal branches that weren't actually abiding in the vine. Right? Some people will be shown to be more interested in some of the ancillary benefits of faith than they will be in actually abiding in me. Like some people will be more interested in something that looks like life without having any interest in actually submitting their life to me. Right? And these hinge moments will come and some, Jesus says, will abandon the faith. Those are the dead branches. Or rather, the hinged moments will reveal that their faith was actually in something else all along. That their hearts were clinging to something besides who I really am and what I'm really aiming for. So, if you're following Jesus, expect a lot of hinge moments. Because in them, he is trying to dig down into you and cut away the excess 
and to give you an ever-increasing sense of his love for you and to increase your love for him and to draw out the purity of your faith in him and increase it. So Hebrews 4.13 says this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He is the only one who can truly discern hearts and motives. In in fact, Scripture says, I thought it was kind of ridiculous, you know, how do I discern my heart? Um, Scripture says that we can't discern our hearts, right? That we that our hearts are dark, and that the attempt of us to try to understand ourselves, we're starting from faulty footing already, right? And I think the writer of Hebrews agrees with that. Like, we're not gonna figure ourselves out and fix ourselves, so you know what you do? You just lean into Jesus every moment that you get and keep leaning into him. The vast testimony of the Bible says that our hearts are the problem, that we create the outward appearance of proper action, but inwardly have our trust placed in something besides him, that we can do things that seem right to us, but do them in a way that is not actually submitted to God's authority. So Proverbs 16.2 says this. It says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. So at the end of the day, what really matters is not what we are able to discern about ourselves. What matters is our response to him. Right? Yes, initially what matters is our response to him at our conversion. Right? That is significant. That matters significant. But his work does not stop at our conversion. It keeps going and doing deeper and deeper and deeper work. And he is the only one who can understand our hearts. And he is the only one who has any power over our hearts to cut away what's bad in the first place. So we seek to submit to him, not to some idea that we build up of him, but at him as he actually is. And we keep responding and keep pressing in and keep pressing in. So today's main point is this. Church, our daily response to Jesus indicates the status of our heart. So I'm just gonna tell you to keep responding to him and keep responding and go deeper, right? And invite him. Invite him to do things uh, in your life that are painful or give him the permission to do things in your life that are painful, that he might bring about his purposes. Maybe pray a prayer like this. uh, Jesus, whatever you have to do to make me the person you want me to be, do it. Keep pressing deeper with him. So in your hinge moment, Whatever it is, whatever temptation that you are inclined towards, whatever thing is maybe seeking to pull you away, the encouragement is don't harden your heart, but to press more deeply into the Jesus that is revealed in God's word. So what? So what? Number one, be wary of a Jesus who lets you get your way. 
So verse 14 goes on immediately after this and says, since then we have a great high priest who wields that two-edged sword, by the way, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There were in the first century many false gospels, many false confessions, right? And 2,000 years later, That has just given more and more time for many other false gospels and false confessions about Jesus to develop. And this is why it is crucial that the Jesus we follow is not a Jesus that is different from the Jesus that the Bible presents. Right, that's why we need to go to the word of God every day, letting it read us, because sometimes... We think Jesus wants something for us that we actually just want for ourselves. And if we go that way long enough, we build a a Jesus whose graciousness extends to letting us get anything that we want. And if that's the Jesus that we arrive at, that's not the Jesus that Scripture presents. The Jesus of Scripture, his primary message for the majority of his ministry was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jesus of scripture tells one really rich guy that the best thing for his heart is to go and sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. The Jesus of scripture says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And after all of these years, if you search the internet for five minutes, you can find someone presenting a version of Jesus that ignores the things that you want him to ignore and gives permission to the things that you want him to give permission to. But So you, so you just need to know that the real Jesus is always going to be graciously challenging you and calling you to deeper repentance and transformation. Okay, that's number one. Number two, test your heart or allow your heart to be tested, right? Um, As we walk the walk of faith, as we interact with people, as we let the Holy Spirit do his work in us, there is kind of one very specific character attribute that I think he brings about that, that has the ability to reveal where the purity of faith actually is. And it's in humble submission, right? Humble submission is the fruit of a pure heart. Meaning, so, so the Bible calls us to submit one to another. Uh, the, the Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples who are eventually gonna be leaders in the church, he says we don't use our leadership as a, uh, like the Gentiles do to lord it over people, but uh, we go among people just like Jesus went among us as the one who serves. We go among people as those who serve. Right, that, that the call to anybody who would lead in the kingdom, even right before uh, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, right before he tells uh, wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church, right before that, he says, all of you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right, there's, there's something about this attitude of humble submission, of willing to hold my preferences with an open hand, that that is created by the work of the Holy Spirit in us and by the purity of our faith in Jesus. Right? And so I, I would just encourage you that humble submission is the fruit of a pure heart. And then finally, number three, 
I tell you to draw near again and again and again and again. Verses 15 and 16 of this passage that we read today says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, meaning he gets it, right? He has, he has dealt with the frailty of being a human being. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus has gone through it. Jesus understands the degrees of the temptation. He gets the concept of hinge moments. He understands what we have gone through. And so the encouragement in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You know, as we talk about like pushing deeper into our relationship with Jesus, digging deeper, experiencing this kind of deeper life that we have with him. Um, Even as we talk about the idea of humble submission and giving him authority and surrendering to him, all of that is true and possible and realistic because he is one who comes and extends grace and mercy to us. He knew everything that we were tempted to do and he remained perfect, remained mature, remained uh, complete through the experience of all of that temptation. And, And we have not remained mature or complete or perfect through the experience of all of that temptation. And do you know how he now responds to us? He doesn't look at us and say, hey, I did it better than you did, so get your act together. He responds to us with grace and mercy. And says, draw near. Draw near, come, dig deeper. I am safe to dig deeper with. You have nothing to be afraid of here, so dig deeper. Church, would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I don't know what you are up to in um, the hearts of people in this room, but I suspect that some uh, are discovering things about themselves that they do not love. Um, Lord, as you apply scripture to our hearts, the scripture that reveals Jesus to our hearts, that you do a process, engage in a process of cutting away and um, pulling out what is pure. And so my, my heart for the people in this room is that you would lead all of us to uh, be humbly submitting to the Jesus that the Bible reveals. Lord, that you would incline our hearts to trust him more and receive the mercy and grace that he extends to us towards our failures. Lord, would you build up in our hearts uh, expectation of him, appreciation for him, a deep love for him. And I pray this more than anything else, that you would give um, those in this room but when we talk about our failures and our disappointments, it becomes too in, hard to, in the same, uh, same conversation, in the same time period, experience the reality that we are loved by you. So Lord, whatever shame may exist as a result of this, as a result of our own failure, Lord, I pray that that uh, shame would go away 
Lord, that you would give those in this room a very real sense that the Jesus that the Bible proclaims, the Jesus that we believe in, the Holy Spirit who represents, who is Jesus here and now, who is the the presence of Christ among us, that you would give us a very real sense of the love of the God of the universe for us. The love that has been so clearly and passionately extended to us through the cross of Jesus. Lord, that you would do deep work in the hearts of people in this room by your Holy Spirit to know that they are deeply loved by you and that from that place of love you would drive them deeper into pursuit of you. This is work that only you can do. And so, uh, word of God, the one who wields the sharp two-edged sword, would you go to work on people in this room, in this place, that we may be revealed to have hearts that are pure, pure, 